one of the things that is so important about building movements, which is the process of putting more power into the hands of more people, is that you have to build the kinds of alliances that are unexpected, right? You have to build between people who might think they don't have anything in common and you have to find the relationships and the places of connection in order to maximize the amount of power that you have. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Welcome to our Women's History Month series on Skimmed from the Couch, where we're telling you about the women who made history this past year. Alicia Garza joins us on today's episode. Alicia has spent two decades as a strategist and organizer for communities and social movements. And in 2013, she wrote three words that ended up changing the world, Black Lives Matter. She's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, one of the most recognized social justice movements globally. And this year, the movement has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Alicia is now the principal of the Black Futures Lab, an organization that's working to elevate Black political power. Alicia, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thanks so much for having me. We are really excited to to talk to you today. In Danielle's intro, we touched on very briefly, but you have a very extensive, very long resume. And I'm very curious, when you think about yourself as a professional, like what stands out to you the most is like, this was me at my best. When I think about me at my best, honestly, I think I'm in that moment right now. (laughs) And it's funny because you're right. I have been doing this work for a long time. You know, I've been an activist since I was 12. I've been organizing since at least the age of 20. And I just turned 40 in January. So when I look back on kind of this like 20 year span, I'm really feeling at 40, like there's a whole bunch of things I know now that I wish I knew then. And there's a whole bunch of things that I'm unlearning that I feel like have made me a better campaigner, have made me a better organizer, and that make me a better advocate. Just to get specific, I have much less anxiety about what people I don't know will think about a thing. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. And, you know, that lesson, I think, really comes from, you know, years of being inside of movements where there's a lot of chatter, there's a lot of feedback, and there's a lot of, you know, ways in which people want you to kind of do what they're doing or what they think is the right thing to do. But it's really important, I think, to kind of hone your craft of understanding what you know and what you don't know. And at this point in my life, there's things that I I know, and I know them because I have fallen on my face 150 times. (laughs) And then on the other hand, I would just say that part of what I feel more open to in this stage of my life is the project of what it is that we're building as opposed to what it is that we are dismantling. I think as an organizer, you build your muscles, right, around 
understanding what is wrong. And that's an important skill. There's a lot of people out there in the world that don't have a consciousness around that. So, you know, it's not to say one is better than the other, but in this phase of, of my career, if you will, I'm really focused on pushing myself to articulate what it is that I think needs to be in the world, right? So if I'm going to say, you know, that we don't have an adequate healthcare system, I also need to be able to say what adequate healthcare would look like. And that is the muscle that I'm building right now. And it feels really good. It's it's nice to lean into really speaking your dreams out loud and inviting other people to come along with you and help you sharpen them and say, yes, that's my dream too. Or yeah, my dream kind of looks like this. What about this? I, I love being in that space. Can I just say how refreshing it is to speak to someone who in the middle of everything that's been going on in the past 18 months, when you ask the question of like, when do you think you've been your best? The answer is now. Like that is (laughs) very, very unexpected. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I think we are in a fundamentally different moment than we were 18 months ago. You know, if I look back on where I was, you know, then we were in the middle of the Trump administration. And, you know, every time I turned on the television, it was like I had a bodily reaction to whatever the news break was going to be. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like there was so much stimulus all the time that was negative. And, you know, I, I feel like for the last year and some change, it's really felt like we're just trudging through the quicksand. And, I still think we have so many challenges right now. It's like if I were to give a visual picture of of how I see myself <laughs> and our movement right now, it's like we're at the not the bottom of the mountain, but I think we've you know we've been climbing for a long time, and you look up and you realize you're only a quarter of the way up, but you feel like you've been climbing forever. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm able to look back behind me and say, "Wow, you made it a quarter of the way. That's pretty good." <laughs> I was really struck when you you started today, you said that you have been an activist since you're 12 years old. Most people are not doing impressive things at 12 years old. You grew up in the broader Bay Area, which is known for just such crazy socioeconomic disparity. And I'm really curious how growing up there brought you to become an activist at such a young age and what that looked like at age 12. You're so right about Marin County. And it's funny because people don't associate Black people with Marin County, which is where I grew up. So every time I say, oh, I grew up in Marin, people go, Marin. (laughs) It's like, without fail, no matter where I am. It's like people kind of draw back and go, huh, Marin. And you can see the wheels turning. And, you know, I feel the same way when I look back on my childhood and growing up in a community that was largely affluent in a family that was not, I'm like, wow, girl, you did that. (laughs) Um, Look, for me, I, I think that one of the things that has made me a better organizer is having that experience, having the experience of being one of, or one of the only, or one of a few. And that feeling of isolation and 
constantly navigating a space of, am I normal or am I not normal? Am I like these people? Am I not like these people? It really actually gets you into a space of appreciating what you bring at any given moment. And being in a place that had such extreme wealth disparities, right? You have really, really wealthy people. For example, you know, I growing up, I had a good friend whose dad designed the wave on the Coke bottle and he lived in this huge, amazing house, right? <laughs> I grew up with friends who, you know, their parents were quite wealthy and my family was not. And uh, I think that is reflective of the region that I came up in where you have extreme wealth and then you certainly have extreme poverty, but it is shielded by the fact that you have extreme wealth. And growing up and becoming an adult, when I met my partner, uh, my partner comes from a very working class background. And, you know, when we first started dating, they would say things to me about rich people, how rich people were, how rich people did, what rich people liked. And I was like, I actually don't have that experience. I grew up around a lot of wealthy people who had literally the same problems as the people that you grew up with, but they were able to hide it better because they had money to do so. So a lot of my friends grew up with parents who were not around, parents who had serious substance abuse issues or, you know, other kind of emotional challenges. I grew up with people who weren't raised by their parents. They were raised by nannies and au pairs. And I grew up with people who really longed for a connection and a relationship with their parents that they weren't able to get for a whole range of reasons. And at the same time, I think they were trying to make sense of the world, having everything at their feet. And I did not have that experience. And I think for me, part of why I fight so hard and why I fight the way that I do is because I both understand the intricacies, right, of wealthy societies, particularly as it relates to societies that are, are not wealthy. And it helped me very much understand how our lives are organized in such a way that the majority of people actually don't benefit. And it's, it's easier for me to also be able to say that there are ways that our society and our economy is organized that really hurt the majority of people. And that is true from whatever perspective you're standing in. And I think why that makes sense in my line of work is that it helps me to better see where there are possibilities for connection and relationship that you would think are unlikely. One of the things that is so important about building movements, which is the process of putting more power into the hands of more people, is that you have to build the kinds of alliances that are unexpected, right? You have to build between people who might think they don't have anything in common and you have to find the, the relationships and the places of connection in order to maximize the amount of power that you have. And so I, I think my, my upbringing really has prepared me in a unique way to be able to see between the lines, around the lines, all, all the ways. What was your first time that you were like, oh, this is me as an activist? There's been so many. I got involved when I was 12 in reproductive justice. And really, I was got involved in a fight that was about having condoms in school nurses' offices. And in a pretty liberal community, you'd be surprised how 
much hand-wringing there was about that. However, I think winning that opportunity for young people to be able to have access to the things that they needed to make choices that made sense for them was really important, and it spurred me in a different way. I did that work for a very long time, the better part of like 12 years or something like that. And it wasn't until I left university and participated in a program called the School of Unity and Liberation. They had a summer school program that was essentially about training young organizers of color how to do organizing work. And that summer, I think, is one that really shaped me in a profound way. You know, I would show up at the office and we would do role plays and trainings for about two and a half hours. And then we would go out into communities and knock doors for hours and hours and hours until it was dark. And basically it was kind of weird to be knocking at somebody's door at that hour. And I really learned how to talk to people. I learned how to talk to people that I don't know, that didn't know me, that might have been suspicious of me or hostile to what I was saying. I learned how to learn about people, how to ask questions that got people to open up and tell their story, but also tell me about the things that worried them every day, the things that they hoped for and longed for. And I learned how to turn a no into a yes. And, um, you know, in the age of Me Too, you would think that that was a bad thing. But in an organizing context, the ability to move somebody from a place where they believe nothing is possible and certainly nothing that they do can make any kind of change happen, to move somebody from that place to seeing their own power, to seeing themselves as the superhero in their own story is exhilarating. And it was that summer that I learned how to do that and learned how to do it in a rigorous and scientific way while also learning how to pivot on your feet. You know, I often tell this story of a woman who I built a relationship with over many, many weeks. And at first, she would slam the door in my face. Like every time I would show up at her house, she would slam the door in my face. She would open the door. She'd be like, what do you want? <laughs> I'd be like, hey, I'm here to talk about X, Y, or Z. And she'd be like, I'm not into that. And she'd slam the door. And me being who I am, I'd be like, but why is she not into it? She didn't even hear what I had to say. So I'd go back the next day and I'd knock her door and I'd try another angle. And eventually I would just say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm in the neighborhood and I'm just stopping by. How are you doing? Having a door slammed in your face is just the most obvious, exaggerated symbol of rejection. Everyone faces rejection in the workplace. This is a very exaggerated form of rejection. So I'm just really curious how, from a manager viewpoint, you think about it. Absolutely. Well, in that story, what worked was getting to understand why it was she was slamming the door in my face, as opposed to getting all in my feelings about being rejected. It wasn't actually about me at any point in time. It was about a, a woman who was trying to navigate her conditions and her surroundings. And here I was trying to say that things could be different, but everything she was experiencing in her life told her not to trust me, not to believe me, not to invest her faith in a pipe dream. And, you know, the more that I came back and just tried to get to know her, just tried to get to better understand 
what she was about, what she was facing every day, I learned so much. I learned that, you know, her no was actually rooted in fear of retaliation. It was rooted in fear of being attacked. It was rooted in a fear of taking a risk and not actually getting the result that you wanted. And I think in the workplace, it's the same. People have all kinds of reasons why we do what we do. We are wrapped in the stories of how the world has impacted us and how we long to impact the world. And sometimes those things come into conflict. And especially for those of us who have been placed in categories that are designated as less than, whether it's being a woman or being a person with a disability or being a person who's an immigrant. There are all of these stories that shape us both because of our experiences, but also because of the way that the world has been trained to see us. And those things are constantly in flux. And so in any relationship or interaction, we get to have the opportunity to explore a little bit more about what that's about and to see if there's any connection there, right? Who can't relate to being rejected? Who can't relate to feeling isolated? Who can't relate to having a dream that you're worried that other people will think is too audacious or too bold or just kind of off the cuff? Who cannot relate to those things? But in order to get to the relational part, you actually have to build a relationship. Somebody has to see you and say, that's a safe place to land. This is somebody who wants to hear what I think, what I care about, what I long for. And that to me is really the starting place. And I think in my team in particular, you know, I tell people a lot that we're looking for people who are looking for us, but sometimes they might not know that they're looking for us. They know something's wrong. They're unsettled by the way that things are, but they literally don't know where to turn. It's not like there's a, a yellow pages, right, for activism. <laughs> there's no there's no directory, right, for the movement. I wish there was. But even if there was, right, you'd have to think about how people get that into their hands and see it as a trusted source of information. So everything that we do each day is about breaking down those barriers and not taking it personally, but training ourselves to listen, training ourselves what we're listening for, right? And committing ourselves to move through a process with people, knowing that it's not going to be linear. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, teams across the nation is to become scientific when it comes to people. I want to go back to the scientific part, but just in thinking through everything that you're saying, it's so powerful and it's also so in a way like one-on-one -on -one connections. I also want to talk about the origins of Black Lives Matter and social media, which in a lot of ways, everything you just said doesn't necessarily seem compatible with social media. And you know, you've talked about that hashtags don't make a movement. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've been asked probably about 80,000 times over the last decade, how do I turn a hashtag into a movement? There's this thing I really care about, and I'm trying to figure out what is the hashtag that's going to break through. 
And it used to really bother me. You know, I'm a zennial. I'm not a millennial. And so I had an analog childhood and I had a digital adulthood. So I didn't grow up with social media in the same way that people who are 10 years younger than me did. And I guess I would just say that even though it used to frustrate me because I was like, I, it, this doesn't make sense, right? This doesn't compute. I realized that a lot of the reason that people do that is because there is a fairy tale that we tell about Black Lives Matter, which is it is the hashtag that turned into a movement. And that's not actually true. There was a hashtag, right, that allowed people to follow a conversation. And in a moment of extreme crisis, that hashtag was people's lifeline to better understanding how it is that they could get involved, how they could stop something that they saw that was untenable, but also how they could understand what was happening and why it was happening. However, what has launched this movement is what happens when people come together offline to do something about the things they care about. Now, with that being said, you know, maybe I've changed my mind about this over time. I don't think that hashtags start movements. I believe that people start movements and I've seen it and been a part of it um, many, many times. And at the same time, what I realized for people who grew up on social media, it really is their lifeline. So there is a way to build deep and intimate relationships online, but it takes time and it doesn't come through hashtags. I still think that the process of change requires that people aren't able to hide behind the avatars that we create online to represent ourselves, to represent what we think and who we are. I know there's a lot of people, myself included, right? We're more brave online than we are in person. And we don't have to be vulnerable in digital spaces because people aren't in your most vulnerable places. They're getting to see what you want them to see. But in relationships that happen in real time, there's so much that we can't hide behind. And that is very much the secret sauce of organizing. It's the secret sauce of social change, not the bravado, not the ego, right? But it's very much about connecting in your most vulnerable times and making a decision that we cannot survive without one another and that you're going to take action in such a way that helps to preserve and bolster those kinds of relationships. Think about the closest people to you in your life. These are people who've seen you at your best and your worst. They've not just seen you glammed up with makeup on and doing your thing, you know, on the Zoom. They've also seen you when you're sick and you are embarrassed about the way that you look, right? They've seen you when you um, fell down, when you failed at a thing. That's what builds bonds between people for life. And it's not to say that social change is dependent upon the worst things that have happened to you in your life. It's dependent upon our ability to be vulnerable with one another and to tap into the things that we only whisper to each other late at night. Social change is about encouraging each other to be louder about those things and to do the work necessary to change the rules, to bring those things into existence. I'm listening to you talk, you know, Danielle and I, we've talked to lots of founders. We are founders. We know what it is like to like 
think about a brand, build a brand, feel like it's your baby, and then also like have to scale it and can't control every decision, don't love everything the brand does. And I'm really curious because we are a for-profit business. As a founder of a movement, as the creator of that, when you see that it has taken on its own legs and has become just this massive global movement, how do you feel as the founder of that? Well, I think to answer that, I I would have to say movements are not for-profit companies. So it's a little bit different for us. This movement is older than us, right? I mean, the fight for Black dignity is much older than me and it's much older than you. We didn't create a movement, but we created an organization that turned into a global network. We created a whole narrative, right, around what Black freedom struggle looks like in this moment that I think has shaped the trajectory of this movement for decades to come. And it is all of those things that you talked about, except that we didn't set out to do this. I would imagine that for you and for Danielle, you sat down and said, I have this idea, let's build it out. And then you figure out who to bring in around you so that it can be bolstered and amplified. And then you're 100% right when it's amplified you do. You lose control of it and you have to surrender to that, right? Because the whole point is for people to take it up and adopt it as their own. I think we have this interesting collision in this moment where we didn't sit in a room and say, let's create this thing. And then also personally, we tapped our networks, right? Not to help us build the brand, but to help us fight. And part of how this became successful was that a lot of people took this up and it wasn't just the people that we knew. It also doesn't mean that we didn't sit together when we realized it was taking off and say, well, what do we want to do with this? What are the interventions we want to make? And I'll say that we spent a lot of time at first trying to control it. And there were good reasons for that. One, you know, we were noticing groups taking it up claiming it, saying they'd started it, and then putting a bunch of values and stuff in there that we were like, no, that's not what this is about, right? So we had to course correct, and we felt very strongly that we needed to do that because it was important to us to get the message out that we were trying to propagate. But then there's times, and there I can remember specific times where you do just have to say, gosh, I can't control what everybody does. And I also can't take responsibility for it. You can only continue to say what a thing is so many times. And then at a certain point, you're right, people take it up and they adopt it as their own. And hopefully what people do with it is the right thing. But sometimes people do things with the thing you create that is weird, doesn't match your values, it doesn't jive with what you think and what you feel. And they're hard decisions to make. So I uh, left BLM in 2017, the day-to-day operations of it. I'm still definitely a fellow traveler. And I decided, stupidly maybe, to start two other organizations focused on building political power. And I took a lot of the lessons that I learned about flying a plane when it's still being built and applied it to these new organizations that I was building. 
the lessons being, of course, do you want to control the thing or do you not? Right. The lessons being what kind of people do you want to work with? What values do they need to have? The lesson being what kinds of things do you do and what kinds of things do you not do? You can't be everything to everyone. And so I've had to make some decisions about that with the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund. But I'm really grateful for them. If I hadn't been forged in the fire like that, I, I, I wouldn't have known to make those choices. I want to talk about the work you're doing now and also coming off of everything you just talked about. How do you get or stay invigorated? I, I think a lot of people have come off and are still in very much a, a time of distress and in a lot of different ways. How do you keep going emotionally? Okay. I was like, oh, coffee and tequila doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> no, it does. Because okay. thank you for that honest answer. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I was joking to a friend last night that I think I played a big role in keeping the tequila industry just like on top, <laughs> especially this last year. I, I think for me, what I've had to do, especially in the pandemic, is really pay attention to taking care of my spirit and my wellness. I'm somebody who came up in this work being told that self-care was like indulgent. I mean, I see it actually as survival. And for me, especially in these kind of conditions of extreme duress, I've had to pay attention to it in a way that I maybe thought I did, but didn't really. You know, I'd say, oh, like I sleep enough a night and, you know, I hang out with my friends and that is like good for me. I take bubble baths. I, every so often I practice yoga. And now I'm kind of singing a different tune. When you're trapped inside and isolated from your people and have an extreme change in the things that you're able to do every day, it takes some getting used to. And for me, we went in this really weird lockdown with very little information about what was coming next. But then this second explosion of Black Lives Matter happened and it was a lot. It was a lot of stimulus, but also I was in, I felt like I was in a place and unable to leave. And it made me feel like a sitting duck, right? For a lot of us, when there's things going on in our lives, or we suddenly have like increased attention, we really value the places that we can just be alone and think for a second. And all of that was interrupted because my sanctuary, which is my home, was where I was working for the first time in years. So it's just all this stimulus in the places that I'm used to unwinding and taking a deep breath and taking stock in my safe spaces. And I started to develop a level of anxiety. Like I remember being on the couch after a, literally a 14-hour day of interviews and death threats and, you know, all the things. People calling me, you have to change this from Black Lives Matter to Black Lives Matter too. Like going back through the same motions from 2013. And I just remember I couldn't catch my breath. And I was sitting on my couch and I could not catch my breath. And I started crying. And my partner was like, what is going on with you? And I was like, I can't breathe. Like I literally can't catch my breath. I can't calm down. All I want to do is rest and I can't rest. And, you know, I was getting anxious. 
And it was at that point that I started seeing a therapist weekly and also really taking care of myself. So what that looks like and how I'm staying invigorated is riding my bike every morning. I have to move my body every single day. And if I don't, I don't sleep well and I'm not focused and I'm not present in myself. So I have to have some kind of exertion to stay invigorated. The other thing that I have to be able to do is say no a lot. I say no a lot more these days. No to things that are interesting, but not my path. What's your line for saying no? Either it's just, no, I'm not available for that. Or I say, this sounds like an awesome opportunity. I'm really focused on these things right now. And so I can't take advantage of this opportunity right now, but I appreciate you offering it to me, right? Which is essentially, I'm focused on other things. (laughs) And the other thing I've been doing a lot of is cooking. You know, recipes are pathways to unlock a thing. And it kind of doesn't totally matter if you succeed on the other side. I mean, obviously you want to have delicious food, but if it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it was going to turn out, the implications are not that big. (laughs) Our our last segment, lightning round. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kick it off. I got a hot Alicia Garza tip. Tell me about your puppy. Oh, my Charlie Nelson Garza. Oh my God. I love him so much. He's an American bully. He's a pocket bully. He's so cute. He's the runt of the litter. He's not quite as big as his siblings and he's adorable and so sweet. And he has an Instagram and he has a whole Instagram following. So you can follow him at Charlie Nelson Garza on Instagram. What's the last movie or TV show you binged? I am binging right now a TV show called Queen of the South, and I'm obsessed. And the one I want to pick up again, actually, is The Crown. I loved it. It's just really long and detailed, and I am detail-oriented, so I'm like, I can't skim it. When you first heard that Black Lives Matter was up for a Nobel Peace Prize, how did you react? Two ways. One was, holy Moses, and the other was, Oh my God, people are going to lose their shit. (laughs) Do you even go on social media at that point? You're so right. I literally just like turn the phone over and I'm like, you know what? (laughs) Not today. (laughs) This is what happens, right? It's, It's everyone's and it's no one's at the same time. And we just, we deal with this thing, right? Where when terrible things happen around Black Lives Matter, nobody's BLM. (laughs) <laughs> but when, when wonderful things happen around BLM, everybody's BLM. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Both, but I love mornings because they're quiet. And that moment before the sun rises, when you start to see the world wake up is one of my favorite times of day. I've got two questions from HQers. This is from Alyssa. What is your go-to self-care remedy? Go-to self-care remedy these days besides tequila is, and really honestly, because it's a nice stimulant, not a lot of sugar, but if you want a non-alcoholic version, my self-care go-tos these days, my partner got me a road bike for my 40th birthday. And so I've been doing long bike rides. From HQ or Nina, what are you reading right now? 
Oh, I just finished The Three Mothers by Anna Malika Tubbs. Loved her book. And now I'm on to The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, who is also a good friend. And it was her book birthday yesterday. I hope you have a chance to have her here. That was going to be my next question. Who should we have on next? Definitely my sister, Heather. Okay, we're going to ask you to intro us so that we can get her on. Thank you so much. Thanks for spending time with us today. And thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 